Well, I don't know if you've thought about it this way before, but I think that some of the greatest challenges that you and I face in the moment can quickly become forgotten footnotes in the future because of the demands of the present. Let me say that again. That some of the the biggest challenges that you have faced or are facing right now can quickly become some of the most quickly forgotten footnotes in your future story because of the present day struggles and anxieties that we have. In other words, I was talking to my one daughter this past week who's in high school and I said to her, do you remember when your biggest concern as a freshman was whether you could find your locker in time or not? kind of laughed about it, a forgotten footnote in her history that indeed was a moment of anxiety that no longer is the primary concern because it's past, it's gone, it's in the past. But in the moment, that took great anxiety and stress. Or if you're a parent and you're trying to raise your kids to the potty training stages, we're going to pray extra for you here this afternoon, right? Kind of help you get through that. But that phase passes, believe it or not, it actually does. And as you look back as a footnote, as a parent of a high schooler now, I can say, oh, I remember that. I mean, I kind of forget the pain of it all, but if I work hard, I can go back and remember what that was like. But I forget that because it's a forgotten footnote in my past because my present is very different. And for just about everything, I think that's true. If, we, if you've been alive for 9-11 when the planes were flown into the towers, you remember quickly the The national conscience was drawn together in unity about the strength of a nation and how we have to fight for one another and there was great unity across the aisle and we held hands and sang a song together outside the Capitol, whatever we did. And Remember that day? It's the reason why they say on Veterans Day, never forget, right? Never forget because we do. We do. We absolutely do. We do. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. We tend to forget. We tend to forget the things that we have learned, the lessons we have learned, and the ways that we have been shaped through some of the greatest challenges of our past that actually can help us both in the present and in the future. And in this series that we're in called The Biggest Thought You'll Ever Think, what we're trying to do is get our minds around who God is, because my contention is that the biggest thought that you will ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God, because it shapes everything about how you see the world, how you see yourself, how you're going to see your role in a relationship, in your future financially, whatever it might be. The biggest thought that you can ever think is a thought that you will think of when you think of God. The problem is we all tend to forget what we have at some point learned about God. We all tend to forget the times when God has actually showed up in our past in a way that could inform our present and encourage our future because we forget. We just forget things. It's not that we're trying to forget God. We just forget the lessons that we have learned. It's just the way life works. And the people of Israel, by the way, who we have been tracking with on this series are just like us in that sense. They have forgotten. And we are in this series. What I'm trying to do is unpack for you a gradual revelation of God from creation till revelation in five short weeks, next to impossible. But what we've done is we've seen at the opening pages of Scripture in creation, God creates. Last week we were talking about Moses' life and how God has shown up as a great redeemer and deliverer of the nation of Israel. He is present. He is the one who says, I'm going to redeem you from the nation of Egypt, take you out of 430 years of slavery, and that's who I will be. I'll be present with you. I'm going to be a holy and powerful God. Why in the world would you serve any other God when I just showed you that I'm more powerful than the gods of Egypt through the plagues. Why would you ever do that? Here's the Ten Commandments, and here we go on moving forward. And now we're in a period in the history of the nation of Israel where they're in what we call the prophetic period, the prophets, people who have written hundreds of years later after the time of the Exodus. And honestly, the people have forgotten. 
They've forgotten the Exodus. They've forgotten the reality that God was present at a particular time. They've forgotten that God is holy. They've forgotten that God is righteous. They've forgotten that he deserves our honor and praise because of who he is. And they are, quite honestly, just like us. So here's what I want to say this morning, in case you happen to nod off or you know, get distracted on Facebook or whatever you do. All right? Here's what I want to say, and I'm going to explain it. That God not only offers salvation for all tomorrow, but also wants justice for all today. If I'm going to explain to you what I think, how I think God reveals himself in Scripture through the prophets, then the biggest thought you'll ever think about God, as informed by the prophetic period, it's this, that God offers not only salvation for a future tomorrow, but also wants justice for today. That this, I think, is the message of the prophets. In fact, this is what they are reacting against. They're looking around them and they're seeing the injustices that their fellow Israelites, their leaders, their political and spiritual leaders are doing to one another. And they're saying, this isn't right. This, the way you're treating each other, is not consistent with a holy and righteous God who is close to those who suffer and who redeems people. Do you remember what God did for us in the Exodus, and there is a resounding no. And so the prophets do this. They try to explain, here's who God is, and here's how they explain it in Jeremiah, for example. In Jeremiah, I'm just going to read these to you, and I'm going to have you turn to another place in a minute. So just listen to this for a minute. But in Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah says this about God. He says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he's angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. So tell them this, that these gods, because the Israelites have been setting up other gods, who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Now, why would anyone who's been redeemed from Egypt make other gods? Did you not remember that God just set aside all the gods of the Egyptians? No, we forgot. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom, stretched out the heavens by his understanding. And when he thunders, the waters and the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. And he sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from the storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. And then he writes this. They are worthless. They, the gods, they're worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. And Jeremiah stands in the nation of Israel and says, remember this? Remember this? That God, he is the God, there's no other God before you. Remember that? This is who he is. You may remember, you, you may know the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God Almighty, a great hymn of the faith, one that moves me still when I hear it, when I sing it. Well, that came from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, he says this, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the earth is full of his glory, though. The need to remind the people of Israel that God is holy and the implications of that come resounding through the prophets. And he goes on in Isaiah chapter 40 to say this, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. That the prophets are trying to remind the nation of Israel in this space of injustice. There is a holy, righteous God. You don't put other gods before me. You just don't do that. And then they're trying to remind God that, or remind the Israelites that God is present with his people. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 43. That when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so here's the prophet speaking into his space to say, remember, God is holy, but he's not just transcendent. He's not just powerful out there. 
He's with you in here. When you go through the waters, when you go through the fire, this is a God who wants to be with his people. This is why he redeemed them. Not so that he could save them and then push them away and go be holy out here, but his holiness drives him to want a relationship with his people. So why would you, why would you push that away? Why would you push that away? Every nation has certain documents that shape its national identity. The United States of America is no different. We have the Bill of Rights. We have the Declaration of Independence. We have certain um, phrases that remind us about what we think the best ideal of governance should be. We believe in the United States of America that all men are created what? All men are created equal. You all knew the answer to that right away. I didn't need to tell you that. I need to put that up here because you've heard that before you've reiterated that. We have the the, um, the uh, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why? How did you know that? Because we've been shaped by a natu- national conscience around certain documents and language create a national identity that is uniquely American, just the way it is. The nation of Israel is no different. They have a document that is in our Bibles that shapes and should shape their expectations around how their government and how their nation should function. It's actually in the book of Psalms. I want to invite you to turn here because this is our central point for this morning. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 72, the 72nd Psalm, because the 72nd Psalm, Psalm 72, is actually a document that while predating the prophetic period, actually casts light on what should be. It casts light on how they should govern. It casts light on what they should expect a ruler to be. It is what both Jews and Christians agree that this is what we call a messianic psalm. This is a psalm that while speaking to a current king in the hope of a current king, namely David, actually previews forward well beyond David's time period too. This is how the ideal king should rule. This is how the ideal king should work. This is how the Messiah should function. And Psalm 72 is a national conscience psalm that says this is what one should expect when one has the king, the Messiah, as your king, as your ruler. And it's very intriguing because it speaks to what was missing in particular in the prophetic period. So let's look at Psalm 72. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, there's a Bible in the pew near you. Psalms are in the middle of that uh, book. And that Bible is our gift to you if you don't own one, by the way. All right, Psalm 72, and David is writing this, and he says this, And thou, the king, with your justice, O God, look how he begins, with your justice, We're going to take the first four verses together. The royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity or peace to the people. The hills, the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. And he will crush the oppressor. And look just in the first four verses of all the allusions here to justice, righteousness, uh, and affliction that are going on. Again, verse 1, he's asking, like, endow or give to your king justice so that he can rule correctly. We want our leading piece of our king to be justice, that he will do what is right. 
verse 2. He'll judge in righteousness, and then the afflicted ones will receive justice. Who's afflicted? The afflicted ones are the ones who are, who are punished by or not rewarded by the current system. They don't have power to, they're unable to, they're oppressed, whatever it might be, they're afflicted. Let's get them justice. Let's get the people who are most oppressed justice. Verse 3, the mountains will bring prosperity or peace, that's a Hebrew word, Shema, to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness, and then he'll defend, defend, again, the afflicted, people who've been afflicted by all kinds of things among the people, and save the children of the needy. Who's the most vulnerable in society? The children of the needy? Are they not in that category of the most vulnerable of society? So the children of the needy are in the mind of the most powerful ruler in the nation. (laughs) That is what we want the Messiah to have in his mind. That is what the ideal king has. When he comes into power, he doesn't come into power so that the people can serve him, but this king comes in so that he can, first of all, think about justice all the way down to the least, quote-unquote, valuable people in his kingdom, and that is the children of the needy who may not even have a birth certificate, a passport, or the ability to work or even live anywhere. The children of those people who we don't even know their names, those are the people the Messiah wants justice for. You see how far-reaching that goes, and he will crush, he will crush the oppressor, people who press in on that. Now look what happens to that in verses 5 to 7. The hope will be then, well, someone like that, we'd want to reign forever. Like we want them to seek a second term and a third term if we could make that work. And let's just keep the terms rolling. Look at this. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon. Through all generations, he'll be like rain falling on a mown field. This is a beautiful imagery. Like showers watering the earth. In his days, the righteous will flourish and prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. What a picture of eternity here. That there will be a space, it's just beautiful language, that the earth will be enriched by this kind of king, that the soul of man who's been afflicted will be enriched by a king who cares for people to this degree. And then he talks about the scope of how wide-reaching this reign will be, verses 8 to 11. He will rule from sea to sea. Of course he will. And from the river to the ends of the earth, the desert tribes will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him, and all nations will serve him. So here we're talking about a messianic future uh, here, that there will be a Messiah who will do this. And again, he goes back into, in verses 12 to 14, back into, kind of cycles back into what this king will do. For he will deliver the needy who cry out. The afflicted who have no one to help, the people who are running out of options. They don't know the answer to, to today's questions, let alone tomorrow's. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Again, just like the first four verses, another set of verses that remind us, this is this kind of king. This ruler has the heart of, how can I take those who are most needy, those who are most afflicted, those who have no one to help, take pity on these people and save them from death? Because good kings, good leaders, good rulers, and you've heard me say this before, good leaders use their strength to serve people around them. That's what good leaders do. That's what they've been endowed to do. Endow your king with justice, O God, that my strength might be used to serve the least among us. Because if I don't care for the least among us, I don't care for us at all. 
Continues. Verse 15. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May, may people pray, ever pray for him and, may, and bless him all day long. Let grain abound throughout the land on the tops of the hills. May it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. And may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. I mean, I, I would want a king like this, wouldn't you? And nations will be blessed through him. This is tying into the Abrahamic covenant. And they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the Lord of Israel who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This is part of the Psalm of David, Psalm 72, that concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse, is the last verse there. This is a, this is a national identity psalm. This is what the people should have expected when they think about someone who rules and reigns. This is why when the prophets come in, to our conscience later on, we see what they walk into. It is no wonder that they react the way they do. When they see the injustice in front of them, it is no wonder if they've been shaped by the Messianic Psalm of David, if their expectations as a nation is what we just read. This isn't life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. This isn't everyone is created equal. This isn't this at all. This isn't endow your king with justice, O God. In fact, here's what the, the prophets were seeing. I'll read some things to you here in Micah chapter 3. Listen to this. This is almost like PG-13 rated the way, that, or maybe worse, I don't know. Not worse here, okay. Here, I'm reading the Bible, okay. And, and I said, just in case, I need to say that, all right. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. It is, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, speaking to the leaders, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot. I told you it was a little, maybe PG-13. Like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord. Of course they will, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at the time because they have made their deeds evil. Compare that to Psalm 72 for a minute. No wonder the prophets screamed and yelled about what was going on. No wonder God used them to say, guys, this is nothing like what you should be doing. This is nothing that the Holy One, the Deliverer of Israel out of Egypt, would ever want you to do. Throughout the prophets, Amos and Malachi and Micah and, and others, here's some things that were happening. Crimes of injustice included but weren't limited to these things. Perverting justice by taking bribes. Depriving the poor of justice in the courts. Imagine if these things were happening here in Lancaster County. If our justice system was overrun by bribes. If the poor couldn't get justice in the courts because they didn't have the money that was needed and only the powerful were served correctly by our justice system. Imagine that for a minute. Defrauding laborers of their wages. And if you're a laborer, you're going to work for somebody, they don't pay you what you deserve at the end of the day. And this is in the Bible, in Malachi 3 5, that this was a point that God said, that isn't right. And then you don't care anymore. That the people who are most needy and need the good day's work, they're not getting paid adequately. They're not getting paid right for what they should get paid. And that bothers the heart of the king. Why would it not bother the heart of a Psalm 72 leader? It goes on. We see uh, in Micah 2.9, 
using the courts, the courts, because they were puppets of the wealthy, would take homes and lands from widows. Who's the most vulnerable again in society? Widows are among them. They don't have, in this case, a man to fight for them. In this day and age, that was extremely important. And so then the court would come and take their land, especially if you're right next to a, a vineyard or any other plantation that was owned by someone who had more money. What an opportunity when the man of the land dies to take that land and take it upon yourself. And the court was allowing it, especially if you paid them enough to do that using false scales to defraud in the marketplace in Amos chapter 8. This is price fixing, our modern day price problems. This is, are we using appropriate measures to price things, lack of a better term, but using false scales to defraud in the marketplace. In Micah 3, using slaves and forced labor to do what shouldn't be done. The wealthy and powerful using violence to oppress the poor in Micah chapter 6. In Micah 7, family members mistreating each other and no accountability for it. Malachi chapter 3, mistreating the foreigner or stranger, abusing, again, the people who have little social capital. The foreigner, I think that's an issue for us today. And the stranger, you think that's an issue for us today? Here's what Zechariah had to say in chapter 7 of his writing. He said, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But the nation Israel, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. What a picture. Picture of a juvenile reaction. I didn't hear you. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. So this is why in Amos chapter 5, the prophets cried out for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And some of you know a very famous verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. God made it clear what he wanted from his people, and that is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Why? Because no one was doing that. Because everyone had forgotten. Because it doesn't take long to forget the things that we all should remember. The things that we've been taught. The greatest moments of our lives that have shaped us. It does not take long for any of us to forget. And the nation of Israel was no different. And so the God of the prophets, as I said at the beginning, the God of the prophets reminds us that the God who offers salvation for all tomorrow also wants justice for all today for those who are most oppressed, for those who are most weak in our society, for those who are experiencing a kind of difficulty and disadvantage that those who are more privileged cannot always relate to. That a God who wants salvation for all tomorrow, the, mess- the messianic king, the one in Psalm 72 who rules over all, whose reign will endure forever, whose scope of reign will go from sea to sea, says, oh, the children of the most needy? They're the ones I care about. The people who are most vulnerable, yeah, I care about that. The systems, the legal systems that are in play, I care about that. The economic systems, I care about that. Why? Because God cares about justice. That's what he does. Now, I have a question that goes along with this. I'm going to press in a little bit if I can, and you can press back. Not right now, but I guess you could if you want to. But I'm going to press in a little bit on this and and then uh, allow you to figure out how this lands for you. But a question that I have for me, and I hope you would consider asking this question for you, is this. How does my faith decrease 
your disadvantage, not just increase my advantage? How does my faith decrease your disadvantage, not only increase my advantage? If we're honest, in our society here in Lancaster County at least, having the faith that you have, calling yourself a Christian if you call yourself a Christian, actually does serve you great advantage. It does serve you a societal advantage, generally, still, generally, a, a respected idea, a respected faith, generally true. I had one business leader tell me, he said, Tim, if I'm honest, because I've been a Christian business owner, I have been trusted with business deals that otherwise I would not have been trusted with. If I'm honest, I can step back and see that I have received benefit from my faith. I have. I have received benefit, and I cannot deny that. If I had walked through this not being a Christian or being another faith or being an atheist, then certainly I would not have had the advantage that I had here. And so there are advantages that come from just simply calling yourself Christian here. Not that we do it for those reasons. It's just it would be good to acknowledge there are advantages for that piece here. And so I have to ask the question, does my faith not only serve my advantage, but in what way is it decreasing your disadvantage? In what way is my faith not just propping me up, giving me more respect in your eyes, or maybe making my business more successful, or my interest in my future more successful, but in what ways is my faith actually decreasing your disadvantage. In fact, not necessarily helping me at all, but decreasing yours. We say at DPC, one of our core values is this, that we serve our neighbor with abandon. This is one of the things we say that we aspire to. Okay, we're not killing it on it. We're not failing totally either, but this is a both actual and aspirational value. And one of the questions we associate with this so that we can think about, if you're a member at GPC especially, we want to invite you to ask the question, are you in this game? And one of the questions is this, that is, who, where, and how am I serving? If this is true for you, then I want you as a member of GPC especially to ask, okay, if that's true, if we serve our neighbor with abandon, and I'm a part of the we, then who, where, and how am I serving? Who, where, and how am I serving? Because this is what people do who want to serve neighbors with abandon. I'm a part of the we, so how am I doing the thing that we say we want to do? This past week, um, I think we all know, was MLK Day on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Great day to celebrate the great civil rights leader, uh, Martin Luther King, who did amazing work in our world, and a great thought leader in that, and great uh, civic leader in, in all kinds of things. Uh, this past week, because of MLK Day, I read um, a letter from a Birmingham jail. And if you've never read that, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, in April 16th of 1963, MLK, Martin Luther King, was imprisoned um, in Birmingham, and he received criticism, believe it or not. Leaders tend to get criticized. He he received criticism from um, eight white clergymen who said to him, essentially, we support you, but you shouldn't do what you're trying to do in the way that you're trying to do it. You should, instead of taking direct action by having these sit-ins, even though they're nonviolent, Instead of doing that, you should work the system. You should be patient. You should wait this out and work in other ways rather than taking direct action. And so Martin Luther King, because as he wrote in his letter, what else am I going to do when I'm sitting in prison? I have time on my hands. I'm going to respond. And he wrote a letter. It's an incredible letter. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. Um, It gives you an insight into the heart of a leader who's thinking the way that he is thinking. And I resonated with him because... I, um, 
I will never have to raise children in the environment that Martin Luther King had to raise children. Okay? I just never will and never have. So I don't fully embrace and understand, let me put it that way, I don't get at a, a deep level what it would have felt like for Martin Luther King and many other of our black brothers and sisters to raise children and families in the environment that Martin Luther King was dealing with. And so when he wrote some of these words, he was trying to write to his white brothers and sisters and saying, you want to know why we're not waiting anymore? Do you want to know why we're taking direct action? He said, let me explain it to you this way, and here are some of his words. I'm going to pull out portions of this letter. He said, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and, and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? You want to know why we are no longer waiting? Why we're taking direct action? These are just some of the reasons why. And MLK, Martin Luther King, uh, was also a, deeply, um, a man of deep faith, a believer in Jesus Christ, and a, a member of the church and involved significantly. In, um, in matters of faith. And so as he wrote this letter to eight white clergymen, he later went on in the letter to talk about the church. And his words are appropriate for us to hear today. Here's what he said about the church. He said, It's in deep disappointment I have wept over the laxity of the church, but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I'm in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful, and a time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, it was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators, language that was put on Martin Luther King. But the Christians pressed on the conviction, in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo, Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. And then he finishes the section this way. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity 
forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. At the top of the letter, Martin Luther says something that you may have heard before. And he says it this way. It's a great summary, and I'm going to finish with this. He says, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Whatever affects even the least child of the most needy affects you and affects me. And to think otherwise is to miss the heart of a father, the heart of a king, the heart of a Messiah who cares for justice for even the most needy among us. Not just for salvation tomorrow, but for appropriate court hearings today, for appropriate pay today, for systems that create the world in which we live to be full of justice and righteousness. And to miss that is to miss this, is to put the church in a space where the church is no longer an effectual voice. And in its silence, can condone a lack of involvement in transformation, community transformation, societal transformation. What we say here at GPC is we believe the church should be a transforming presence in the town square, relentless in pursuit of the social, spiritual, and cultural good. Why? Because we think that is what Messiah will do. We think that is the heart of a king who says, I care about the least among you. And if we don't, if I don't care that the little kids aren't learning how to read, if I don't care about homelessness in this space, if I'm not concerned as a business leader about fair pay and equity and workforce development, transportation system that allows people to get to work where they need to get to, housing system that allows people to actually live in homes that provide them with, with the respect and human dignity that they need, if I don't fight homelessness in the way that we, we feel like we should, we have to ask the question, have we forgotten? Have we forgotten that the God of the nation of Israel, who is the God who brought people out of the Exodus, who is the Holy One, who wants to walk with people through the fire, is also the Messiah King, who says, yep, not only do I care about salvation tomorrow, but I care about justice today. Which is why we say at GPC, we want to serve our neighbor with abandon. And we have to ask the question, who, where, and how am I serving? You may not be able to feel like, maybe you don't feel like you can make changes in our homeless system. Maybe you don't feel like you can transform our justice system. Maybe you don't feel like you can transform our economic system. Fine. I get it. I, they all, these are big issues. But we can ask and answer the question, who, where, and how am I serving? As Martin Luther said, everyone can be great because everybody can serve. Everybody can be great, because everybody can serve. Who are you serving with the privilege you have? Who are you serving with the privilege of faith that has been endowed to you? Where are you serving, and how are you serving? That our neighbors can see a God of justice, because he cares about even the most needy among us. This is what the God of the prophets teaches us, that not only does he care about the future, he cares about today. 
And so this is not an indictment on Grace Point Church. Please hear me. I don't feel any of that towards you. I hope I can, if I need to say that again, I will. I don't feel an indictment upon it. But I do feel a challenge toward who, where, and how am I serving? Church, who, where, and how am I serving? Who do I see who works with me? Who do I see that I go to school with whose family is living and doubling up and tripling up and living in their homes, I mean, living in their cars? Who, where, and how am I serving? What does this mean for me to serve my neighbor with abandon? Because this is a God of the prophets who gets angry, angry, angry with injustice. Because the heart of the Father is the heart who cares about even the least of these. This is what I hope for us, to keep reaching into this town square for the social, spiritual, and cultural good of everybody. And I want to do it with you. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to come together around this teaching and this idea in the Psalms and also in the prophets in particular. I pray that you would give us courage as your church, as the expression of your church, and the workplace where we find ourselves, at school where we're connecting with folks around us and our volunteer opportunities, the ways that we engage with people whom we love in our communities, with our families and our friends and all of this, that we would be people who recognize that justice anywhere is indeed a threat, injustice anywhere, excuse me, is indeed a threat to justice everywhere, that we are all inextricably linked and allowing injustice even to the least of these is giving ground that we shouldn't give because this isn't the rule of the Messiah. This isn't the aim or the hope of the people of God. That the thing that should shape our conscience as Christians is this messianic hope even in Psalm 72 that God, that you would lead us with justice, that we can see this work done. So I pray that you would give us a courage not just to throw up the big things and wonder how we could ever possibly help bring reform to these large ideas, and maybe some of us are led in that direction. But I think all of us can be led in the direction of who, where, and how am I serving my neighbor? Who am I serving? Where am I serving and how? That my faith isn't just to increase my advantage, but to decrease the disadvantage of the people around us. So Father, I thank you that you indeed are a holy God, that you are what we say is the great I am. You are the king. You are the one who we come under. I pray that you give us courage to do what we know we need to do with the things that we have heard this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.